Welcome to the Open Door Church podcast. Our prayer is that you will be encountered and encouraged by the Holy Spirit and challenged by the word of the Lord. May the Lord bless you and stir faith as you listen to this week's message. Guys, uh, we've been really kind of uh, discussing, jumping in, uh, this concept, this idea of what it means to be saved. Really looking at this language uh, that's somewhat Christianese that we kind of run around with. We talk about being saved and getting saved. And we know that we want people to be saved. But uh, it's one of those questions that we really, I don't know if a lot of us have wrestled with when we think about that kind of terminology. Uh, what are we saved from, right? And so we, a number of weeks ago, we started down that road and some of you guys were visiting <coughs> and I talked about how God saves us. Uh, we talked about him saving us from sin, right? We talked about him saving us from the devil and from hell. And I had this really popular kind of message that I preached for like three weeks right up before Easter and where we talked about sin, the devil, and hell. Woo! <laughs> right? Sign us up on that train. And we talked about how, how we're saved from those things. And we talked uh, last week on Easter, we talked about what we're saved by, right? We're talking about being saved by grace through faith. We, we looked at what it actually meant to have faith, to believe in Jesus. We looked at John 3.16. And now today we're kind of coming to the culmination of this topic, the study that I've been preaching on for like six or seven weeks now, um, quite by accident. Uh, <laughs> it wasn't ever intended to be this long, to really kind of talk about what we're saved for, the purpose of our salvation. And so one of the things that we kind of defined early on in our study was that we're saved, uh, we're saved uh, from God, by God, for God, which sounds kind of crazy. It's not how we would typically describe our relationship with him or our salvation experience. But it's true. We're, we're saved from God's wrath by God's love, which is something that we talked about last week, for God's joy and pleasure. One of the things that I think we cannot reiterate enough is that we are saved because God wants us. I, I, I need you to, to think about this for a moment. In Hebrews chapter 12, in Hebrews chapter 12, uh, we see that it was for the joy that was set before him that he endured the cross. The reason why he went to Calvary was because he wanted you. He wanted relationship with mankind restored. Not because there was anything inherently good in us, but he desired that restoration of relationship and that sent him to the cross. He chose willingly to die to make a way for us to be with him where he is. And that is the good news of the gospel, amen? So last week, I'm going to kind of recap just a little bit because it directly leads into an important point for what we're talking about today. We were in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 through 9 last week, and we really talked about what it meant uh, by what we're saved. And, and, you know, Paul lays it out pretty clearly in Ephesians that it's by grace through faith that we're saved, that it's not of works that anybody could boast, right? We understood that there was nothing that you could do to earn your salvation. That was one of the important aspects that we were looking at. But we looked at believing is more than just thinking, right? 
Believing is more, to believe in the Son of God is more than just to like intellectually acknowledge that he is the Son of God, but it actually encompasses faith, which does have action behind it, right? And so we walk through that. I'd encourage you guys, uh, look back at our past messages. We have a podcast if any of this is of interest to you. But last week we were in Ephesians chapter 2. Uh, verses 8 and 9 uh, were one of, the, one of the kind of the chunks of scripture that we looked at. But I'm going to read 8 and 9, and then we're going to continue on into verse 10 this morning, because I believe this really begins to answer the question for the purpose of our salvation, why God saves us. And we see this here, um, beginning in verse 8, it says, God saved you by his grace when you believed. And you can't take credit for this. It is a gift from God. Salvation is not a reward for the good things that we have done. So none of us can boast about it. For we are God's masterpiece. He has created us anew in Christ Jesus. So we can do the good things he planned for us long ago. And I'm in the NLT. Wow, man. These guys are rock stars back here. Adam wasn't here to put my uh, verses in, uh, on the screen, so thank you guys. But I want to read verse 10 here again. It says, For we are God's masterpiece. He has created us anew in Christ Jesus so we can do the good things he planned for us long ago. I think it's uh, very clear here how verse 10 carries us from being saved by grace, which we talked about last week, to being saved for something in particular. And I've got three kind of very small, I don't want to say small, but three kind of thoughts that uh, I took out of this verse in verse 10 that I think would be important for us to stop and ponder for a moment The first thing that I see here is that God has an intentional plan for your life. There is good work to be done, and he will equip you to accomplish it. If I could kind of rephrase verse 10 here for you to think about and how it applies to you here today, it would be that God has a plan for your life, that there's work to be done, and that he will equip you to accomplish said work. You're saying, well, how do you get that? We, we look at his plan here. It says here that he planned for us long ago. What did he plan for us long ago? Good works, good things here. That tells me he has some intentionality behind us being saved, right? For, there, for something to happen, for something good to happen. It says that he's planned, he's purposed it in his heart, things specifically for you to do. There are people to be reached that I can't reach, right? Joey, you're going to encounter kids that I'm never going to have the opportunity to meet. Uh, We have visitors here from Arkansas today. I don't know if I'll ever meet another, I hope I meet another person from Arkansas, but that, I don't know. Um, (laughs) uh, Where are you guys from in Arkansas? Little Rock. Rock? Okay, so I've been there. (laughs) I went to BB, Arkansas for a while. I don't know. You guys, little, yeah, okay, cool. Uh, (laughs) But the reality is there are people that God has called you to minister to. There are people that God has called you to reach in Arkansas that I'm never going to reach. You know, I could have a conversation with uh, somebody that is really passionate about sewing and quilt making 
And you know, I'm probably not going to connect with them the same way that Debbie is, right? God has created good works for you to do. There are things that he has intentionally laid out that only you can accomplish. And that's why it's important that you surrender your life to him because he so desires to use you specifically for a plan, for a purpose that, you know, I'm not going to be able to fill. Everybody has this idea that the pastor is supposed to do it all. But if you actually read Ephesians chapter 4, it's actually the other way around. The idea is that pastors and teachers are given to equip the church, to equip the saints, to equip you guys to do the work of the ministry. Because there are places that you'll go that I'll never get the opportunity to do or to go. And there are people that, that God wants you to reach that I'm never going to have the opportunity to reach. I need you to have this mindset that God didn't save you just so you could fill a pew on a Sunday morning and maybe put a tithe check in the offering. God saved you because he has a purpose and an intention for your life that will ultimately bring him greater glory if you're surrendered to it. There's good work to be done, right? That's the second thing I see here. You know, Jesus instructed us in the Gospels to pray for laborers because the harvest was white and it was plentiful for harvest. And we look at our culture, we look at what's taking place right now, and it is very much uh, a, just glaringly obvious to me that there is plenty of work to be done and not enough people willing to actually do it. And get their hands dirty. I know there are plenty of people that, feel, that fill pews on a Sunday morning that are willing to complain about what's wrong with society and what's wrong with the culture. And they'll talk my ear off about everything that's wrong with the church. But very few people are actually willing to do something about it. There is good work. The word here, uh, we see good things in the New Living Translation, but we see good works uh, in the New King James, which I like. There is good work to be done. There's the gospel that needs to be preached. We're familiar with the great commission that we know is a call to believers to share the good news of Jesus. There is work to be had, and it's a good work. You guys know the difference between good work and like not good work? You know what's not good work? Sheetrock. That's just not fun. Darwin asked me to come help him this last weekend, and I was up there, and if you need help with sheetrock, I'm not your guy to call, okay? I'm good. I could sweep up after you. If you need photos taken of your house, I can do that. I can do that. You need a website designed, I can do that. I'm not good at it. I'm just not, you know, we know. You might be called to that. God might have intents and purpose for you to do drywall. I don't think that's his intent and purpose for me. Now if my computer would just stop dying, that'd be great. Anyway, there's good work to be had. I was going to make some joke about between good work and bad work. Uh, but what God has in store for us, friends, is good. It's not just us sitting around waiting for Jesus to come back. We said a prayer and now we're just waiting for our ticket out of here kind of a deal. I need you to shake that mentality. Salvation, being saved, uh, what we've been talking about, is not the pinnacle of Christianity. It's simply the entry point into relationship and eternal life that Jesus talked about. 
Salvation is great. It's a free gift, and we're excited about that. But what salvation does is it opens up a door to a life that you could not imagine how good it is. And a part of that life is work. A part of that life is things that God has intended for us to do, his plan, his purpose for you. You remember John 10.10, right? We talked about it. We've been talking about it for a few weeks. Um, You know, the thief comes to still kill and destroy, but he comes that we might have life and life abundantly. Or I do like the way the New Living Translation phrases it, that we might have a rich and satisfying life. Anyway, uh, that's a... That's good. Uh, And I want to be clear that the life that we have with Jesus, eternal life, you might think, oh, just like sitting in heaven singing songs. I don't know if I want to live forever, um, you know, in kind of like a perpetual church service. That sounds really boring. Uh, Can I tell you, uh, for most churches, yeah, that would be true. I don't want that. What God invites us to is not a boring life. The life that he has in, in store for you is not just some kind of repressive, you know, just, uh, just hard, terrible thing that's never going to bring any joy or pleasure, right? We, we understand if we, if we read in the Psalms, what the psalmist said was that there's joy at his right hand and pleasures forevermore, right? This life that he has for us. It's a good, rich, and satisfying life that is amazing. It's not this oppressive, just kind of, I've got to follow the rules mentality. It's good. Anyway, uh, I'm getting ahead of myself here. Uh, I said I had three things out of that verse, was that he has a plan, and that plan actually encompasses you doing something for the kingdom. It's not just you kind of continuing on with your life. You were a school teacher before, then you got saved. You're going to continue to be a school teacher, and that's all you're ever going to be. No, when you're, when you're encountered by Jesus, I, I, if an elephant sat on you, how, how different would your life be? Right? I want, to, I want to think about this in like a drastic way. Like let's say you got hit by a bus and you survived for some reason, you know, but uh, your life would change drastically. I'm trying to think of like the most glaringly obvious uh, idea for an encounter for like a life-changing scenario. Uh, when that stuff happens, life is forever changed for you, typically in a bad way. I can't think of a good way of an elephant sitting on you and your life being changed. Maybe you get hit by a bus and you're not really hurt, but you get millions of dollars out of a settlement. Like that would change your life drastically, Right. Somebody just came up to you and handed you $14 billion. Uh, most of you, that probably wouldn't be a good thing. Um, you're all like, hey, don't say that. <laughs> just being honest. But regardless, your life would forever look different, right? Some kind of life-altering, life-changing occurrence like that. I, I want to be clear that uh, encountering Jesus experiencing the gift of salvation will be the most life-altering thing that you could possibly encounter or imagine. It doesn't just simply change your life. It brings a new one about. And this is the problem that too many people have. They treat coming to Jesus as simply spicing up maybe kind of a bland life. Or they're trying to make the current life they have better when that is not what the gospel is about. 
When we come to Jesus, it's a laying down of our old life and a receiving of a new one. It's not just the old human nature somehow becoming better. It's an exchange of that old human nature for something entirely different, something entirely new. What we read about here is that uh, in verse 10, uh, is that we are God's masterpiece. I want, I, want to look at, I want to look at this here. His poemia, poemia is what it would be in the Greek. And it means literally a work of art. So when we say that we are God's masterpiece, it's like his one-of-a-kind, uh, you know, uh, beautiful piece of art. I was going to try to think of like a famous piece of art, like a Mona Lisa, but I don't think the Mona Lisa is that pretty. Yeah, I, think, I think I've seen like Bob Ross, like on PBS paint. I don't know. That's probably why I'm not like an art connoisseur. I don't know. But God's really good at what he does, and it's incomparable. And he says that you're his masterpiece. And that he's creating us anew in Christ Jesus. He's not taking the old Tina and making the old Tina like a little bit nicer. And this is, what, this is how we treat the gospel, right? We're going to take an old guy that maybe is a little rough around the edges and he's pretty bad. And, you know, we have patience with him because, you know, God's going to kind of clean him up a little bit and just... You know, maybe, maybe curb the language and maybe he'll start covering up his tattoos, you know, something like that. Uh, you, you look at something like that and think, oh, yeah, that's, that's God working and making somebody bad a little bit better. But he didn't come to make bad people good. He came to make dead people alive. That is what Jesus comes to do. And he didn't come to try to kind of just fix you up and like put a bandage on your problems and your insecurities and your depression. He came to deal with it fully to make a dead person live, to make a broken person whole, to make you anew. That's what verse 10 tells us. He says he's going to make a masterpiece out of your life, and that requires radical reconstruction. It's not enough to just try to add Jesus into what you've already got going on because it's, let's be honest, how is that really working for you anyway? He wants to come with a radical upheaval of your life, of your passions, of your interests. That doesn't mean that you don't retain any kind of personality, but he so desires to be the center of everything that you claim to be. There is an, it's an impossibility for you to be, um, you know, a Republican first and a Christian second. It's an impossibility for you to kind of uh, be a school teacher first and a Christian second. If you are going to follow Jesus, his teachings, the things he has to say, have to take first and foremost priority in every aspect of your life, in every working, in every relationship, in every way that you do business. Does that make sense? I've used the analogy, oftentimes we treat Jesus like a condiment, right? You know, like maybe he's like a little bottle of hot sauce. Any of you guys have one of those friends that just carry a bottle of hot sauce with them everywhere because they go to restaurants and stuff and the food is terrible and they bust out their own hot sauce? I was that guy. Um, <laughs> if, I, if you invite me over to dinner and I bust out my own hot sauce, you knew that I didn't actually like it. Being honest. Uh, <laughs> Or some places just, they don't have good hot sauce, right? You know, they just have Cholula. 
or Tabasco. And you need something a little bit more than that sometimes. But we treat Jesus like that, right? We got a little Jesus in our pocket. We're just going to kind of try to spice things up and try to make things a little better. Maybe, maybe life will get a little bit easier if you just try a little Jesus, right? Just add a little bit of Jesus into your life. Maybe it'll get just a little bit better. You know, life is really hard and I'm really just struggling with all this stuff. And, and maybe if I say a prayer here or there, maybe if I try going to church, things will just kind of get a little better. But that's not what Jesus is interested in. He's interested in all of you. He wants the entirety of your heart because he wants to make something completely and utterly new. Because he doesn't just want to make kind of Nate 1.5 and kind of just keep some of the original and try to change things around. But he wants to create an entirely new version of me that is reflective of his son. Anyway... He didn't come to make the old you better. He came to make you 100% completely new. Um, a lot of you uh, probably don't know this about me, but I really like Jeeps. Uh, to put it in perspective, I think I've gone through, personally, uh, 16 Jeeps now. <laughs> uh, all in the last uh, seven years. And so uh, I really just, I like them. Uh, I like driving them. Uh, they're not the most reliable vehicle in the world. They're not super practical uh, in any kind of sense, but something that I enjoy. I enjoy working on them. Um, and, you know, there's just something fun about taking the doors off and the top off. Nothing practical about it. All of my friends hate it because they get wrapped up in helping me take the tops off and taking the doors off. And then we'll drive to Durango, and they're like, it's freezing. Um, why, why would you have a car with doors? Who would have thought? Um, anyway, it's just something I like. But uh, this last week over in Moab was Easter Jeep Safari. Um, and so there's a bunch of like-minded people like me that love uh, spending way too much money on building a really beautiful, nice vehicle that would have at one point been completely just fine driving down the street and just turning it into something ridiculous to climb up rocks and mountains and stuff and beat it up and have it not look as pretty as it did when it arrived. <laughs> um, it's, kind of a, it's kind of a crazy time. Look it up on YouTube. Um, you might think it's cool. I think it's awesome. I don't know why I think it's awesome, but it's just fun for me to, to be off-road and, and do this stuff. But... Um, I think about it, and people, how many of you guys have a hobby? What do you guys do? Somebody start telling me about your hobbies. Quilting. Quilting. Quilting's one. Anybody play golf? Nobody plays golf. Okay, that's great. Uh, golf was one that I thought, like, golf's kind of an expensive hobby, right? Anybody, like, scuba dive? Who's got, like, an expensive hobby? Horses. Horses are expensive. Okay, I was about to make a joke. Uh, that, might be, that might be too close to, for my analogy here. I was thinking, like scuba diving, golf, or whatnot, those, those, those are expensive, right? Like, I don't know what a round of golf costs these days, and evidently nobody in this room does. Um, but I know, like, clubs are expensive. You could easily spend, like, $1,000 on clubs, I'm sure. You probably spend $1,000 on one club. I'm, uh, skiing. Skiing's expensive, right? 
a season pass is like $1,000 now, and, you know, skis, uh, I know that they're expensive. You can get upwards of $1,000 for a nice set of skis or a nice snowboard. I don't know that from experience or anything like that. Um, <laughs> it, it, can, it can wrap up pretty quick. Um, but really, none of that has anything on Jeeps or rock crawling. I want to I be very clear, clear. My wife can attest to this. Uh, that hobby is expensive fast. And uh, it's, uh, it like revolves around breaking things. <laughs> and if you're not breaking things, you're not doing it right uh, when you're going off-road in, in that kind of subculture. But really, it's just more expensive now because of the price of gas, right? My Jeep gets like eight miles to the gallon. I can't afford to drive it outside of the parking lot uh, back and forth to the church. <laughs> um, it's, it's, it's pretty expensive. And uh, the whole Jeep culture, people are proud of these rigs that they build, right? To a fault. You guys know Jeep people? They're really like, I'm a Jeep person. They can be, they can be pretty obnoxious. That was where you were supposed to laugh at me. Uh, <laughs> but they put a lot of attention into building these vehicles. And I'm, I'm particularly proud of my Jeep um, and, uh, and everything that has gone into it. Um, put a lot of time, put a lot of energy, put a lot of effort in finding a really good deal that somebody else started, and I just had the privilege of finishing it. <laughs> but uh, a, lot of, a, lot of, uh, a lot of thought goes into building these rigs to, to, for it to be something that people are really proud of, right? We're throwing yeah, you know, expensive uh, axles under these vehicles. We're ripping out the stock ones. We're putting in uh, you know, a big suspension lift and bigger tires, and then all of a sudden we've got to re-gear, and then we've got to do the transfer case. And, and it just is this never-ending project of putting a lot of time and energy for these things to do one thing really well. Because I don't know if you know this, uh, Jeeps aren't great going down the highway. They're shaped like a brick. And then when you start adding uh, uh, tires and wheels and, and all this crazy stuff to it, uh, they do even worse on the highway. <laughs> they don't go anywhere fast. They leak when it rains. Uh, all these things that are super impractical. But if you want to do one thing really well, they rock crawl really well if you build them right. After a lot of time and energy. And so... I realize this is kind of a silly analogy. It's just something I'm passionate about. But I want you to think of it this way. God, think of you as God's Jeep, okay? Track with me here. I realize you're like, oh, this guy's going crazy. But the reality is God wants to create you for a specific purpose. He has intention for you to accomplish something specific, right? And he's willing to put in the work. It says that he's the one that creates us anew. That we're his masterpiece. He, your experiences in this life, the things that you've gone through, the things that you're going through, is God working on you for a specific purpose, for a specific reason. And guess what? Your reason probably and your purpose probably looks different than the person you're sitting next to or across the room from. And so I want you to be released from playing the comparison game that maybe you're calling in your life and you don't have things going the same way that Joe Blow, your neighbor, does. Because God's intention for you is specific. In the same way that if you were going to try to take my Jeep and race it as an Indy car, it would fail. 
A lot of you have been trying in your own effort to do something that maybe you're passionate about or maybe that you've seen someone else do and succeed in and God's intention for you was never that. Does that make sense? I want you to be, uh, I want you to be able to find comfort in the fact that God has uh, orchestrated something specific and unique for you to accomplish and that he's willing to prepare and equip you and to mold and to shape you to fit exactly what it is that he's called you to do. And I don't know what that is. I can't just tell you that this morning. I could tell you that, you're, that uh, he does, I could tell you what the will of God in Christ Jesus is for your life and some blatant statements. But I do know this, whatever season you're in right now, whatever you're going through, I believe God is working. And you can see him working. If you ask him to expose that, I guarantee you that you're not just going through something to go through something, but God has an intention and it's good would be what Romans would tell us, right? That there is a purpose behind it because God has something intentional for you to do. And so verse 10 is, again, we are God's masterpiece. He's proud of you. He's excited about what he's doing in your life, the work that he's accomplishing. He's working on you. He's making you new in Christ Jesus. He's not just kind of refurbishing you, but he's making you new so you can do the good things, the good work that he has planned for us from long ago. He has something specific set in your heart or set in his heart for you to accomplish. And I, I share this just because I was praying about it, but you need to know this, that God has real purpose behind your salvation. He didn't just save you to kind of put a notch on his belt and, you know, throw a party up in heaven because, you know, another one got saved. Let's, woo, let's party. Uh, there's more to it than that. He's not just kind of, waiting for you to say a prayer and get on the list and then it's all said and done and it's all finished. That's good, but I've said this once and I'm going to reiterate it again, that being saved is the entry point into that eternal life that we're talking about. That rich and satisfying life that we read about in John chapter 10, 10. But the sad reality is that most people equate being saved with simply being forgiven. And while salvation certainly encompasses this forgiveness aspect, it's not the full picture of it either. Forgiveness in and of itself doesn't really matter that much. Take that as a soundbite, put it on the internet, and let people rip me to shreds. But reality, if you think about it, forgiveness is found in the value of the relationship that's restored by it. I want you to think about this for a second. Anybody ever had like an argument with your spouse? Any, any married people here ever fight? Wow, nobody's honest. Okay. Ah, Jack's shaking his head. No, we never do. Deborah's like, yeah, I've been there. And guess what? We're the ones that are mostly wrong. <laughs> I'm being honest. <laughs> uh, you know, it's the absolute worst feeling for me when Kelly and I have some sort of discord or disagreement between us. And can I be honest? Most of the time, it is my fault. But I mean, just, the other, just yesterday, like we're pastors. 
I'm being honest, but we still, there are difficult times. You know, I was gone and trying to get things ready. We're stressed out because we're leaving for this trip and all this stuff is happening. And, uh, you know, we could be short with each other. And I remember driving and my phone cut off because I didn't have cell service um, in between Silverton and Durango. And uh, we had this conversation. I just, that whole drive, there was just like an unsettledness just in my spirit, in my stomach, because, you know, we didn't end with, I love you, or I'm so glad, I can't wait to see you. We were frustrated with each other because there was miscommunication. And really, it was my fault. And I'm sitting there, and I don't know about you guys, but if it's ever your fault, and you know you don't have reason to be mad, but you're mad anyway, you get more angry because it's just, it's, it's, yeah. (laughs) I'm glad somebody can relate to what I'm saying here. But I think about this, and uh, you know, the value, what I wanted more than anything was for when I got home, was for there to be forgiveness there to be received for me because I didn't want to be disconnected from my wife. I didn't want there to be distance between her and I. I wanted to, when I came up, to give her a hug and give her a kiss for it to be reciprocated, right? I didn't want there to be that tension that exists when there's unforgiveness there, right? Because I value our relationship. But how strange, how silly would it be if I asked for her forgiveness and she freely gave it to me, even though it was clearly my fault, but I just didn't come home, right? Or or if I did come home or if I didn't really talk to her. Or I didn't hug and I didn't kiss her. Or I didn't spend any time with her. Even though she's forgiven me and she's opened that door for me to come back into her life. If I don't actually come into it, what I've said is I don't value that relationship, right? It's not that big of a deal to me. Therefore, your forgiveness, it really doesn't matter to me. And so in human terminology, in human thinking, we think about like that. That's not, a, that's not like a, that's, that's kind of relatable. But how many people fill seats just like you on a Sunday morning who have prayed a sinner's prayer, who have experienced the forgiveness of God and the door to relationship has been flung wide open through Jesus' death on a cross, but they do not grace his presence with their lives. They don't talk to him. They don't spend time with him. There's zero substance of relationship. They might casually fill a church here and there, but they don't take opportunity of what was provided through Jesus's death on the cross. They might say, I'm a Christian. They might check the box in the census, but there's no substance of relationship. And I want you friends to carefully consider here that you're not content with just being forgiven. Being forgiven is good. You need it. I can't stress that enough. But if, you forget, if you've been forgiven and being invited into a life with Christ and you don't take that step towards relationship and you don't spend time with him, it's for nothing. He didn't die just so you could say a prayer so your name could be written down and you continue on your merry way. You were saved for a purpose, and that purpose was relationship. That's what God has desired all along. From the the moment of creation, from the garden, He desired to know you intimately, personally, to have a friend. 
That's why when sin entered and provided separation, that's why he went through such radical measure to such extreme to reconcile us to him. Not just so we could say a prayer and get out of hell, but so that you could know him here and now, not just in eternity. purpose for your salvation the reason you were saved you're saved for relationship and fellowship with God if you hang out with me you know that I rag on cliches all the time I really don't like Christianese sayings even though I use them a lot I just I get frustrated when we say stuff and we don't really actually stop to consider what it means but you know, uh, a pretty popular one that gets thrown around all the time is, you know, it's not religion, it's a relationship, right? How many of you guys have heard that one? Show of hands. How many of you guys have used that one? Show of hands. I have. I don't think it's necessarily bad. I believe that primarily God does invite us into relationship, not religion. But I think, if, uh, I think it's important, especially in the context, in the context of of uh, our church today, I think it's important to remind ourselves that activity and intimacy with God are not mutually the same thing. And a lot of the times we judge our activity and kind of correlate that with our intimacy with God, and they're not equal. What you do for God does not equate to how you love God. Okay, and I, I realize that can be confusing because we talked about works, we talked about actually acting on our faith and there being fruit there. But, but the reality is you can't do enough uh, in this life to uh, make up for the fact that you don't love him. Like you could do all the right things, you could say all the right things, you could give all the money, you could do all the stuff. But if there's not intimacy and relationship with God, it's futile, and it's pointless. You see, I don't think religion is a terrible thing. I know in church contexts, and especially the evangelical movement, we, we talk about religion, oh, they've got a religious spirit, or religion this, and I hate organized religion and all these things. And, you know, Jesus actually doesn't even talk about religion that way. But what I am against is religion without relationship. And that's what a lot of people have. A lot of people will grace churches and kind of go through the motions and sit through the sermons and, and kind of do the Christian life day after day after day without actually any substance, without actually any relationship with the man himself. And I think about it, uh, Christianity without Christ is terrible. And I don't know how people do it. I look at people who, who just kind of they, they might post and say that they're a Christian on Facebook, but their life has no substance to it. Who are you kidding? Why are you trying? That sounds miserable. I couldn't imagine coming to church and spending the time that I spend doing the things I do if I didn't have relationship with Jesus. But yet I see people just kind of toil at the fact to try to make it happen and try to make it work. And all they do is dig a pit of self-condemnation and despair, and it's terrible. I can't, I can't fathom that. I think of church on a Sunday morning of how many churches I've been in that, it, that try to do the Jesus thing and try to do the Christianity thing without Jesus even in the room. That's terrible. I, 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 I 
Leonard Ravenhill said it this way. He said, there is no place on God's earth more exciting than the church of the living God when God is brooding there. And there is no place on God's earth more boring where he isn't. I don't, I, guys, this would literally be the most colossal waste of your time if the Lord Jesus wasn't present here in this room. If the Holy Spirit wasn't present in our services. And we should all pack up and go home and go fishing or do something, but because he's here. And I believe his spirit is here. This is worth everything that we could possibly have to give. And that's why I get confused, friends, with people that claim to be Christians that, would, that, that, that really want to profess the name of Jesus. And then, you know, they would say that I've prayed a sinner's prayer and I am saved. That have no passion for what we do here on a Sunday morning. That have no desire to be a part of the family of God. And they've got a, a long laundry list of things that are, are far more important than the gathering of the saints. I can't wrap my head around that. And I'm sick and tired of making excuses for people who don't want to be a part of the family of God. I don't know how many people I talk to on a regular basis that say, oh, Pastor Nate, oh, we can't be there this week, but we're praying for you. We'll see you next week or next month or next year. And there's no consistency. Can I tell you, the way that you live your life, the actions that you take, the way that you spend your time will prove to the rest of the world what you value. And to me, friends, Jesus, what we read about in this book if I'm going to take his word seriously, if I'm going to look at, at the things that he instructed us to do, I can't halfway casually come into this room and just pretend like, okay, we're going to read the Bible today, we're going to do the Jesus thing, and we're going to half-heartedly sing some songs. People stroll in 20 minutes late for the word of God and it's no big deal. We've got more pressing things. We have, we have things that, that require our importance or require our attention a little bit more. We've got bills to pay. We've got things to do. We've got work scheduled. We've got family in town this week. Call me legalistic. Call me mean. I don't really care anymore. Either Jesus is worthy of it all or he's just worthy of some of it. So don't, don't try to play the card both ways and say, oh, you're worthy of it all. You're worthy of it all. Have it, have it here. And dip out. A lot of people think that Christianity is you doing all the righteous things you hate and avoiding all the wicked things you love in order to go to heaven. No, that is a lost man with religion. A Christian is a person whose heart has been changed and they have new affections. Paul Washer says that, and I, I thought that that just kind of perfectly encapsulated what, 
what so many people misconceive about this life. When I talk about making the family of God a priority, about actually spending time in fellowship, about getting locked away in the secret place and actually spending time with God, this idea of relationship, what God invites you to is infinitely better than what he's asked you to stay away from. We kind of picture God as just this rule setter that that has all these boundaries set up because he doesn't want us to have any fun. Can I tell you the fact that he says that he doesn't want you to commit adultery is not because he doesn't want you to just have, to miss out on fun sleeping around. The reason why he doesn't want you to commit adultery is because he knows that what he, what you can find in faithfulness to one spouse is so much better than what you could ever find in infidelity. You know, I I could talk about, he doesn't, oh, God doesn't want me to kill people because he doesn't have fun. That one doesn't work as well. If that's you, we need to talk after service right now. Okay? God can deliver, God can heal. But... A lot of the times we think God just is like this party sucker. Like he doesn't want us to have any fun, right? My kids, you know, uh, they have like one rule uh, when they're playing outside. They're not allowed to go play in the street. Still, they always want to wind up playing in the street. But the reason why we don't let them play in the street is not because they're missing out on some glorious fun to be had by playing in the street, right? Right? We all know as a good father, I don't want them playing in the street because I don't want them to get hit by a car, right? Radical thought. Maybe God doesn't want you to do some things because he ultimately knows, you know, like being creator of the universe and specifically and intentionally making you, he actually does know what's better for you than you do. And so when I look at the things that he asked me to do, it's not this restrictive kind of of withholding persona that I see. I see God exhibiting freedom. And I've always said this, that I believe freedom is demonstrated within the confines of boundaries. That we actually experience genuine freedom to live free from everything that is, uh, that is harmful and detrimental to us because we have boundaries. And we could talk about that later. But I don't see God as just this kind of restrictive, kind of mean guy up in the sky that doesn't want you to have any fun. I see him as one that offers life and life abundantly. And the Christian experiences that because they've, Their affections are changed towards that of heaven when he makes us new. Reality is, there are plenty of people that will say a sinner's prayer, that will recognize Jesus as Savior. And you know, I'm not here to talk about whether they're really saved or not. Or We talked about belief last week, if you really want to kind of go down that hole you can listen to the message but you've got plenty of people that are content with just living forgiven but not entering into that fullness of the promise that God has for us of relationship with him I I preach a message out of numbers when we look at the tribes of Reuben and Gad and the half tribe of Manasseh that wouldn't enter into the promised land right oh I could go off I shouldn't. It's not enough, friends, 
to just live free from sin and live forgiven without entering into the fullness of what God has in store for you. Don't settle for less when God has more. He's not, it's good news that you're forgiven, but that good news is that you're forgiven is to open up the door to a wild and wonderful life with Jesus. That's why the parables that he shares, he, he explains it and he describes it as a great wedding feast. It's a celebration and it's exciting and what he's invited to you, friend, is good. And it will be a radical upheaval of everything that you have known, but it will be radically better. But there are people that will be content with just doing things for God, going through the motion, even doing so impressively. And he will at one point say, depart from me, I never knew you. Right? That's what Matthew chapter 7 verse 21 says. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, they recognize Jesus as Lord here shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who actually does the will of my Father in heaven. Well, I thought it wasn't about what you do. I thought it was about what you believed, right? No, if you believe that Jesus is the Son of God, your life will reflect that fact that you actually believe. And it'll be those who do the will of my Father in heaven. Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? Cast out demons in your name. Didn't we do many wonders in your name? These are people that think they're saved. We're talking about even in, chapter, in Matthew chapter 7, uh, this is the contact of prophets, false prophets here, right? These are leaders in the church. They did all these wonderful things. Enter in Nate's paraphrase version here. Didn't we go to church? Didn't we do the missions trip? Didn't we pay the tithe? Didn't we give extravagantly in the offering? Didn't we do this outreach? Didn't we do all this stuff in your name? Reality is, man, I'd be stoked if people were casting out demons. I'd be stoked if people were actually prophesying in the name of the Lord and seeing these mighty wonders like we would... I mean, if that was happening in our church, we'd applaud them, give them a gold star without actually ever wondering, hey man, what does their secret life look like? What does their private life look like? I believe that right now, the church is coming under the hand of the judgment of God. We look at, you look at all these mega churches that are falling apart and crumbling on national television and throughout the media, you're looking at, at, at these people that we've held in such high esteem and the podium's been ripped out from under them. And all, this, all these things are being exposed, right? Of things that are going wrong behind the scenes. It's because people don't have a firm relationship with Jesus in the secret place. We're, ma we're basing success merely on activity, not first in the place of intimacy. And that's a dangerous way to live our life. And you can't measure that. And you guys have no idea how close to Jesus I really am. I downloaded this message off the internet right before service. <laughs> Just kidding. But the, but the reality of it is, friends, there are going to be people that stand before God saying, didn't we do all this stuff in your name? And it says in verse 23, one of the saddest verses in all of the scriptures, he's going to say, depart from me. I never knew you, you who practice lawlessness. That's scary. There are going to be people that are ready to like march right up into the, into the throne room of heaven. Like, oh, let's kick it, Jesus. He's going to say, depart from me. I never knew you. 
you workers of lawlessness. Whoa, wait, 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 what? Lawlessness? What Jesus is saying here is it is actually illegal in the eyes of the kingdom for you to have activity without intimacy. God is not concerned with how active you are in doing things for him if you first do not know him. It's important that we do stuff. I'm big on that. I think that's, I think that's reflective of fruit and spiritual maturity. But we can never do that in place of actually knowing him. So my question today is, do you know him? Salvation is more than just getting right with God. That's what happens when we're forgiven. That's what happens when we're justified. But what that does is that opens up a wild new opportunity for us to call God our friend. To spend time with him. To do what he's asked us to do. To fulfill his plans and his purposes. I, I think of what the prophet Jeremiah wrote in Jeremiah 9, 23. This is what the Lord says. Do not let the wise boast in their wisdom or the powerful boast in their power or the rich boast in their riches. But, I'm going to read this in a different version. But let him who boasts, boasts about this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord who demonstrates unfailing love and brings justice and righteousness to the earth. Saying, I don't care about what you know. I don't care about what you have. I don't care about who you are. I care about, do you know me? Do you know me that I'm the Lord that exercises love and kindness and justice and righteousness? Deuteronomy 4.29 tells us that if we are to seek him with all of our heart and all of our soul, that we will find him. My prayer for us today my prayer for you, my prayer for me, is that we wouldn't be content with just checking the saved box. But that we would respond to the invitation of the Holy Spirit to come up here. To come a little bit closer. To hear his voice. To surrender our entire life to him. Because he so desires to be a part of what you got going on. Stop shutting him out. Stop trying to do this your own way. It is never going to work. And any illusion of success that you might have right now will at one day come crumbling to the ground when it's judged by fire. My question for you today, do you know him? Because you were saved for relationship. When you stand before God on a day of judgment, you're not going to be able to hand him a card saying, you know what, I'm certified as a minister with the assemblies of God. Oh, I went on this mission strip. Oh, I faithfully attended every deeper project from here to there. I am a member or a partner of Open Door Church. I gave this much to the church. I dug wells in Africa. And I did it all in your name. 
the question it boils down to, do you know him? Does he know you? Because you can know him. We've celebrated that last week. We've been walking through that. It's a gift. You can't earn that. How many of you guys know relationships take work? Right? Married people, it doesn't just come naturally. You think that it does. You see the movies. It's not how it works. I love my wife more than anything, but we still have to work on communication. We still have to figure that out. I still have to be intentional about carving out time to make sure that she feels cherished and valued. The same is true with your relationship with God, friends. I couldn't imagine what my marriage would look like if I only ever saw her once a week on a Sunday morning for two or three hours. We would not be married, would we? No. No, she, she would have left me. Rightfully so. Thankfully, the Lord is not that way. He is far more patient than we are. But please, friend, do not think that you can just give God the scraps of your life and everything stay okay. Your relationship with him is far more dependent on what you do day in and day out than you realize. God is far more concerned with what happens Sunday afternoon through next week than he is what happens here on a Sunday morning. That's not to, that's not to kind of diminish this gathering or get, diminish what's happening here, but he loves you. He created you for you to spend time with him. Stop running away. Stop filling your time with worthless things. Some of y'all got to get rid of video games. Linda, you got to get rid of them. I'm just kidding. I'm kidding. But for real, how much of our time is wasted? Can I tell you, when I stand before God, and he's going to say, well done, my good and faithful servant. But I, I fear what he'll show me what I could have done. You know, I'm not going to miss all the crazy fun stuff that I had. I, 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 I think I'm going to reflect back and say, oh man, I just wish I would have had a little more time to spend in prayer. I wish I would have just spent a little more time engaging a lost and dying world with the gospel. I don't think I'm going to look back and say, oh man, you know what? I really wish I would have caught that next Marvel TV series. <laughs> Missed out. I'm not trying to be just a killjoy and, or anything like that, but friends, I want to take this relationship seriously. I want it to be reflective in my conduct, in my actions. I pray that you would too. So I'm going to invite us to stand this morning. I'm going to pray for us. Thank you for listening to this week's message. If you want to check out more of our messages, find us on Facebook, Instagram, or YouTube. Just search Open Door Pagosa. Our ministry is made possible by the faithful generosity of people just like you. 
If you were blessed by this morning's message and want to partner with what the Lord is doing in Pagosa Springs, find us at opendoorpagosa.com. Here you can give and stay connected with everything we are doing as a church.